You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome today. And as it's already been said, what a week it's been. I want to give a quick and final thank you to all of you who have worked in some emergency service this week, a police, <coughs> excuse me, fire, ambulance, uh, EMS services. You've been amazing risking your lives and yourselves. also want to say thank you to all the teachers and administrators in public schools and private schools who are fighting to keep schools open and kids learning. I know it's a real challenge right now. We're thinking about you, praying for you. Thank you for all of your dedication and work. Uh, if this is your first time here, as always, we sure hope it's not your last. We're in the middle of a series. As you can see, you may you guessed by that video, it's called What About? What we're looking at, some emotional, some cultural, some rational reasons for faith in God and specifically Christian faith in God. And the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some uh, more or less, some more emotionally oriented reasons for faith, things like meaning and hope. But today I'm turning toward a more culturally oriented reason or clue to the existence of God. And it's something that our culture is talking a lot about right now, which is the subject of justice. The subject of justice. Uh, justice has become a big conversation, sometimes, unfortunately, a controversial conversation. But what I'm going to press on you today is something that I think gets lost in that conversation. What you're going to hear is something that I believe is foundational to that conversation. And what you're going to hear is something that I think if you really think about it, if you really take it inside you, can change not only how you think about this conversation, but maybe even help you to live it out a little better. So I like to turn the conversation a bit, maybe turn it a lot, maybe actually back it up several miles. And what I'd like to press on you today is this question when it comes to this subject. Here it is. If there is no God, why are we even talking about justice at all? If there is no God, why are we even talking about justice at all? Because here's going to be my, my argument of sorts, my clue for the existence of God, which is, after all, what this series is all about. Here's the clue today. Here's what I'm going to talk, about to, you, talk to you about today. It's this. The existence of God provides us with a better basis for doing justice. Existence of God provides us with a better basis for doing justice. It's not the only basis. We'll talk about that. But it is a better basis. And I even want to suggest to you, press on you, It's the best basis, a more authentic, the most consistent basis for doing justice. And hopefully help get you there. I want to apparently, as always, try to answer and ask, ask and answer three questions as we go. Number one, here it is. Can you be good or just without God? Number two, can you be morally obligated to be good or just without God? And finally, if Christianity were true, and I believe it is, what would that moral obligation be? So if you're already sort of done with me for today, if you're already thinking about tuning out and turning it off at any point, let me just give you my answers to these questions real quick up front right now. The answer to number one is yes. Yes, you can be good and just in a way, of course, without God. The answer to number two is actually no. You cannot sustain moral obligation without God or justice without God. And the answer to number three is a little too complex to sort of shorten. So maybe you ought to think about sticking around after all. All right, here we go. Let's get going and ask this number one. Ask the question, can you be good or just 
Without God, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of books written about this by skeptics, by people who don't have faith in God, insisting, of course, the title, Good Without God, saying we can be good without God. And let me just start this whole idea by giving you a quote, actually, that a lot of Christians love to quote, and that a lot of non-Christians, I think, hate. It's by Fyodor Dostoevsky. He put it like this in his book, The Brothers, Karamazov. He put this famously, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. If God does not exist, everything is permissible. Now, lots of secular people, lots of non-Christians, and maybe that's you today, you like hate this quote and others like it because it seems to imply, or it's been taken to mean, that if a person doesn't believe in God, that automatically means they are a person who doesn't care about right and wrong, doesn't care about justice, doesn't care about things like good or bad or morality or goodness in the world. They don't care about justice. And that's rightfully frustrating if that's what you think Dostoevsky means or if that's what you perceive that people of faith have said about you. Now, you know, today if you've called yourself a, a skeptic or an atheist, but, but let me tell you, that is not the case. That is not the case at all. People can act justly, care deeply about right and wrong and have no faith in God whatsoever. And for that reason, for all of you who are watching today, who would call yourselves a, a skeptic of any stripe, I want to just take a moment and talk to your Christian neighbor for just a moment. All the Christian folk out there, some of whom may insist that there is no way people cannot be good without God. And I'd like to give us all super fast, uh, especially Christian people, two reasons, two quick reasons why as a Christian you should affirm, can affirm that people can be good without God. And that at a certain level you should have zero issue and no problem when people claim that. Reason number one, first of all, some of you may know the name John Calvin, a 16th century Protestant theologian. Some might call him rigid. (laughs) Some might call him uptight. But the point is he was not a liberal, either theologically or morally. In one of his books, he's talking about this. He's answering a question. How do we regard great secular thinkers? Specifically, he's talking about ancient Greek philosophers who were polytheistic. Ancient Greek philosophers were certainly not Christian people. What do we make of their ideas and their case for morality, because if you have ever read or you were forced to read Plato's Republic and books of, of that ilk, you know it's all about, those books are all about how to build the most just society possible. Calvin said this, he said, quote, whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nonetheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither neglect the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the spirit of God. Shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation and description of nature? Shall we say that they are insane who develop medicine, devoting their labor to our benefit? What shall we say of all the mathematical sciences? Shall we consider them the ravings of madmen? No, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without the greatest of admiration. Let us accordingly learn by their example how many gifts the Lord has led left to human nature. 
Yeah, it's pretty good, right? But, but I think for a moment here, if you're an atheist and it may rankle you a bit, may bother you to hear someone say that the only goodness and morality you have is a gift that comes from God. God's a source. But, but, but my point is this, that John Calvin and actually Christians of all kinds have always said that the basis for becoming a Christian or the reason that God saves anyone doesn't have anything to do with their goodness. How good they are in and of themselves. Christianity does not say that the good are in and the bad are out. No, it says in a way that the humble are in and the proud are out. The humble are those who are humble enough to acknowledge that their goodness, their intellect, their moral concern, their ability to even do justice cannot save them in the eyes of a holy God. You see the difference? Yeah. So first, number one, John Calvin said it, so it must be true. But number two, our own Christian doctrine says that goodness can come from anywhere. And you see this even in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, plenty of non-Christian people doing good things. And in many cases, doing things more justly than those who claim to follow God. So we cannot just turn to those around us and say, you can't be good without God. You can't act justly without God. But, and back to the beginning, back to our our Russian friend, Dostoevsky is acknowledging something that I think still stands, which is that without God, this is my belief, we're going to talk about it right now, without God, it is impossible to sustain moral obligation. Number two, let's ask, can you be morally obligated to be good or just without God? My answer again to this is no. No, it's not possible. Now, this is actually an important distinction, an important question. And I'm going to try to draw out why I think this is an important distinction and question. And I'm going to try to show you why I think it's important for you and for us to wrestle with this, not just as individuals, but as a culture, as a society at large. Start by asking this. What does it mean to have moral obligation? Put it like this, it means to have a course of moral action you are required to take regardless of feeling or situation, which I hope you'll see is different than just having moral feelings, moral feelings. Moral feelings are just like, you know, you feel strongly about a situation and you do something or not. Maybe, maybe not. So how can we, though, how can we account for moral feelings without God? Are there moral feelings? Yeah, you could say there's a few possible ways to account for them. Let me give you three. You could say we have moral feelings because of simply atheistic evolutionary theory. Like you feel some things because your brain chemistry is just developed in a certain way because it helped your ancestors survive. Not because there's a God, but simply because of random mutated evolution. Moral goodness simply helped people survive. One way to try to account for feelings. Second, you could say that, eh, no, all goodness is really socially constructed. Like you're part of a culture. Your culture tells you what to do. Over time, you internalize that and you begin to feel a certain way because of the messages that you have been told or conditioned to, to believe. Or third, you could say, as a really good postmodern person, that you can just make up what is right or wrong or good and bad as an authentic, freely choosing moral agent in the world. Like no one tells you, not your biology, not your culture, just you. So people say you can have moral feelings because of biology, because of culture, because of self-choice. Do you need God to be good? No. Do you need God to account for moral feelings? Well, not really in the sense that there are a number of explanations or theories 
That could account for that. But can we say that there exists moral obligation without God? As in, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what your brain says. It doesn't matter what your biology says. It doesn't matter what your culture or any culture says. Are there things you are morally obligated to do and you must do them or not do them no matter what? Now, if you said yes to that question, that there are things that people should do, people should act justly at all times. If you say that justice must be done, that there's things that we must do or must not do, the question immediately becomes, on what basis are you making that claim? If there is something unjust and we shouldn't do it, why not? Why not? If there is something just and we ought to do it, then why I hope you can see there's a problem here. Let me give you one example. Let's say there's a, let's say there's a culture uh, on the other side of the world. And legally speaking, in this proposed culture, that women there are not allowed to drive. Women are not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to work outside their home. And you say, that's wrong. Why? Well, maybe the, the people in the culture don't feel that way, right? But you're saying, you know, you don't just feel that it's wrong. You're saying those things are wrong, period. Those things ought to change even now, even if all the people in that culture don't feel that way. If you're saying that, if so, then why? Is it because your feelings are superior to theirs? Is it because your morals are superior to theirs? Is it because your culture is superior to theirs? On what basis is that whole culture wrong? Now, if you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're, you're a Jew, and you believe in a moral lawgiver, or if you're the ancient Greeks or Romans, you could at least appeal because they believed in like a, like a transcendent, supernatural, moral world. And so you could at least, if you were them, appeal to that, which they did. But if there's no God, to what do you appeal? You, you, you run around, I run around, we run around with our own each individual moral censors shaped by what? Like our parents, our teachers, our movies, our blogs, our internet, our stories, our media outlet of choice. You run around with your moral censor. I run around with my moral censor. Who should be listened to? Who should be incorporated? Or if it just comes down to me versus you, is it okay if I can make you do what I say you should do because I'm five foot ten and feisty and can overpower you? Is it might makes right? Dr. Martin Luther King famously in his letter from Birmingham jail, and if you haven't read it recently, you especially ought to read it uh, again. When it came, he talked about this. When it came to the issue of laws, he asked, what makes a just law? What makes a law just or unjust? Now, here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, what makes a law just is my lived experience or my feelings or how you make me feel or it's whatever I think because I mean, he said, nope. He said, if a law is in accordance with the law of God, it's just. If it's not in accordance with the law of God, it is unjust and ought to change. End of story, regardless of your feelings, your truth, your biology, your culture. Now, That's a really big claim. And it flies directly in the face of a lot of people who say, nope, there is no standard at all to which we can appeal. And this tension is a really big deal, isn't it? Because it strikes at the heart of every culture. Like, how do we treat each other? How do we make laws? How do we talk about what people ought to do? What people ought not to do? How do we decide what's right and wrong? 
And into this tension have wandered also a bunch of other thinkers who have tried to think about it and wrestle with it because it is a problem. And because we are the first culture in the history of the world to say that you and our people are morally obligated to be for justice and yet give no standard to which to appeal. Now, someone who wandered into this space and wrote about this question was a law professor at Yale University named Arthur Leff, and he died a few years ago. But he contributed a real a thought piece that people are still talking about today. I think it was in the, in the Duke Law Journal. It was called Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. Unspeakable Ethics, Unnatural Law. Kind of got a little meter to it there. But he tried to wrestle through this question. This question, how do we turn to one another and say this is right and wrong, or this is just or unjust without God. Now, Lef was not a Christian, but he was, as I hope you'll see in a minute, really honest, really transparent about the problems this presents and creates in a pluralistic society like ours. He asked, how do you create moral obligation without God? And he gave uh, a few answers here. He tried to uh, present a few ways people try to smuggle this in. One way he talked about was called majoritarianism, majoritarian or majority rules. In majority rules, here's how it works. I think, you know, he said, we say, well, if the majority of people decide on something, that makes it right. Kind of like, where are you going to go for lunch today or tomorrow, right? But left points out a number of problems with this being the basis for moral law. For example, 200 years ago, most people in the world believed that some form of slavery was okay. You could be a good person, maybe a, a God-fearing person, and believe in slavery and own slaves. There were a few outliers for sure, but most people believed it was okay. So was slavery okay then? You say no on what basis? You say, well, it doesn't matter what the majority says. Slavery was wrong. Slavery is wrong. Okay, fine. I'd agree. But at that same moment, you're also saying that majority rules cannot be used as the basis for moral obligation, for justice, for right and wrong. You can't trust majority rules. And the left said the same thing. Second, another way you can try to ex- insist that moral obligation exists is to use some kind of empirical study to say that people are happier when this kind of thing happens or doesn't happen. Like, like you take a survey, like some university does a study. It turns out that this group is happier. Therefore, we base our laws and justice system on that study. But the problem with that, of course, is how are you defining good? And how are you defining happy? Happiness varies enormously from culture to culture. Like what makes Canadians happy? Don't say Tim Horton's coffee. Sorry. Uh, You know, what makes Mexicans happy? The British happy? How do Africans define goodness? Should their bases be applied here globally? For everyone? All right, all right. Let's say, I found, let's say I found a group of people in the world. Let's say they were, actually, they were actually enslaved. And a study based on a university's, a group of professors' criteria, proved they were empirically happier. You're saying, Morgan, I don't even think that could happen. All right, but let's just say it did. All right, go with me here. What would you say to that study? You would say, it doesn't matter what the data says. It doesn't matter if they claim they are happier. Slavery is still wrong and they should be freed. All right. So number one, majority rules doesn't work. Number two, empirical studies won't work as a basis for justice. How do you decide what your just course of action should be? Well, you can circle back to you again. Well, Morgan, it's just evolution. Evolutionary theory tells us uh, what we feel. 
and it tells us to be good because goodness helps us survive better. Well, first of all, why is survival the highest good of the human race, right? The highest good. Second of all, what you're saying that, oh, actually moral obligation here, this doesn't actually exist. It's just that moral goodness is practical. It's practical, it's pragmatic, it's helpful. And I don't think you think that morality is really merely helpful because let's say someone comes close to you with some kind of moral badness like emptying your bank account or something worse like rape. You would never say to them, please don't harm me. It's not practical. No, you would say, that is wrong, period. End of story, every time. And Arthur left, that law professor, he went through all those options like majority rules, people's happiness, evolutionary theory. Again, he's not a Christian. He said, basically, America, let's cut the crap. These things don't work as a basis for moral obligation. The only way there can be moral obligation is if there is a God. But he said, but there's not. And yet we still have to make laws. What are we going to do? He put it like this. He said, quote, there is no way to prove one ethical or legal system superior to any other unless at some point an evaluator is asserted to have the final, uncontradictable, unexaminable word. That choice of unjudged judge is completely arbitrary. Arbitrary. To say individuals have rights and there are things no person or group may do to them without violating their rights is nothing but an assertion. So saying, if you claim that someone has a right to something or something, someone, he's like, listen, that's totally made up and you should acknowledge that. He went on, he said, quote, thus in the presumed absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give to one key question. Who among us ought to be able to declare law? Who among us ought to be obeyed by all the rest? Stated that baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that one would expect to find a noticeable number of legal and ethical thinkers trying not to come to grips with it. Oh, he's saying, listen, this is so unsettling. He thinks, he says, he believes that people avoid answering the question, who among us ought to be able to declare law? Who among us ought to be obeyed? And he said this, he went on, he said, if we go to find what law ought to be governing us, and if what we find is not an authoritarian holy Bible, but just ourselves, how can we be governed by what we have found? And he concludes like this. We all believe that napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved, that there's such a thing in the world as evil. All together now, says who? Says who? Again, you may insist, Morgan, I can just make it up as a human being. All people know that. Well, listen, we've already said that's not actually the case. And so if you're saying we can just make it up because we feel that way before we move on, I want you to see how unreasonable, actually how illogical that thought process, process is. Because one person, to try to answer Arthur Left's question, who says uh, they can make up what's right and wrong for all of us? One person who says, I can, is a professor of critical theory at the University of Toronto. Her name is Mari Ruti. She wrote a little book called The Call of Character, trying to answer this question. And she said this, quote, although I believe that All values, all values, all values are socially constructed rather than God-given. I am not a relativist in the sense that I think there are and there should be universally recognized codes of conduct. 
So again, she starts by saying all values are made up by some culture. But she says, but there are some values some cultures create that all are lived by. She said, for instance, I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass gender equality off as this cultural specific custom rather than an instance of injustice. It would be possible to assert that my insistence of gender equality violates the traditions of other cultures and that I am merely prolonging the legacies of Western colonialism by imposing my Western values on the rest of the world. But I do not believe gender inequality is a specifically Western invention. And I opt to uphold the ideal of getting rid of discrimination because it seems like an ideal worth upholding. Did you catch that? She said she believes all values, all values are socially constructed except for the ones she cares about. And that one is universal. But why? It's because it seems like a good idea. Now, that, I hope you'll see, is the very definition of unreasonable. Let me tell you, if you want peace in the world, I would not recommend you go into other cultures and hand folks that book and say what she said, that all values are just made up except for this one, and you should do what she or I or someone else says. And do you see, can you hear how different that is from what Dr. King said, that something is wrong, not because it seems like a good idea, not because it's an ideal you opt to uphold. No, he says that something is wrong because it violates the law of God. He had a consistent basis. Mari Ruti, lots of others don't. Now, at this point, before I go to my final question, let me just stop and say this, say this. What I've been trying to give you so far, trying to give us, is a clue, a clue to the existence of God. Why? Here it is. It's because moral obligation makes more sense in a world with God. If there is no God, if it's all an accident, you would not expect to find a universal sense of moral obligation. And yet we all have it and we're scrambling to try to account for it. So if you're saying, Morgan, okay, I agree. I, yeah, I see. It is more reasonable to believe that moral obligation exists in a world with a God, but you still don't believe there is a God. Just for one moment, I want you to hear what you're saying. It's you're choosing to believe in a world that's less rational and in something less reasonable. You're within your rights, of course, but just hear what I think that you're saying. But second, before we go on, let me just say, if you're saying, of course, Morgan, and I hope you're saying this, I can see that believing in moral obligation makes more sense in a world with God. And I'm open to exploring who he is. But my fear is that somehow believing in this God who cares about right and wrong and justice will turn me into an impressor of someone else because I've seen that happen. All right, if that's you. I hear you. Let me close with trying to speak to that. Number three, if Christianity were true, what would that moral obligation be and look like? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, tells a parable that gets at the heart of how Christian faith, how trust in him experiencing Jesus transforms the human heart. Look at the parable, the third of three he tells in the chapter. It says he continued, there was a man who had Two sons. Perhaps you know the parable. There's a one father with two sons. Uh, the younger son demands his inheritance, treats the father unjustly, gets his inheritance, and goes off and squanders it, Jesus said, in wild living with prostitutes. But the older son, the older son, 
when the younger brother finally comes to his senses, finally repents of his actions, and when he comes home and repents for his injustice towards his family, the older son does this when the father invites him into the party. Says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Jesus shows us two sons. One lives. One lives an authentic, self-directed life. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No, sorry, that was Elsa, not the younger son in the parable. No. But the other son, the older son, is a morally upstanding, never broke the rules kind of person. You could say one. It's a non-religious person. The other's religious. One's a postmodern. One's a moralist. But Jesus is saying both of them. Are wrong. They are both estranged from the heart of God because both only want the Father's things and not the Father himself. One of them tries to find meaning through abandoning right and wrong, living however he wants, uh, abandoning justice. The other tries to find meaning through keeping right and wrong and judging others for not being as just as he is and not keeping right and wrong. But Jesus says they are both living dead in lives And yet, to the surprise and shock of his audience, Jesus does affirm one of them because in the end, he affirms the younger son who comes back, who had lived wild, treated everyone unjustly, who came back and repented and began to live within the father's house by the father's household rules. So, 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 catch this. Jesus isn't saying that the answer to being a moral oppressor, someone who forces everybody to keep the rules, the answer isn't to abandon right and wrong altogether. No. What's he saying we need to be able to move out into the world? What can cause us to be people who keep the Father's moral law, who care about justice and yet don't turn into judgmental, angry, oppressive older brothers? Look at verse 21 of the parable. It's the moment that the younger son, as he's on his way back home, look what he finds on the road back to the father's house. We find the compassion and kiss of the father. It says, while he was still a long way off, don't you love it? His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Oh, let me tell you, Jesus is showing you this, that you and I, we need at our core, the affirmation and the kiss of our loving heavenly father. It's based not on our performance, oh, but in spite of it, we need to know we are saved by sheer grace alone. And when you know that, when you know that you are loved and accepted by God because of the cost he paid to give his kiss to you in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the giving of his perfect son, when you experience that, now that changes you. And you begin to desire to keep his law just because you love him and you're so grateful to be brought home. What in the end is the better Christian basis for justice? Here it is. It is the non-oppressive moral absolute of Jesus Christ. The non-oppressive moral absolute of Jesus Christ. And so if on one hand you're asking, like Arthur Left asked, says who? Like who gets to tell me to be a person who obeys God? Who gets to tell me to be a person of justice? The answer is the non-oppressive 
moral absolute of Jesus Christ. Because he came into our world. He gave himself up first for us. He did what the older brother in the parable couldn't do. And he he paid the cost to bring you home. He acted perfectly, justly. He defended the rights of the poor and the widow. He cared for the, the stranger, the ethnic minority, the person of another faith system. He, the unjudged judge, became judged for us. For us. And so, let me tell you, in a world where we not only experience moral obligation, but where moral obligation is more reasonable, makes more sense that there is a God, what do we need? Again, as we've heard, oh, we need an evaluator, an unjudged judge with a final, uncontradictable, unexaminable word. Someone who can be trusted. Who among us ought to be able to declare such things? Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Because of him, this past week, as you know, church, specifically this past week, we clothed the naked. We fed the hungry. We did our best to care for the poor and the oppressed and the struggling in our community. Not just because we had strong moral feelings when we saw the news, which we did, but because there exists a non-oppressive moral absolute named Jesus whose commandments, whose law of liberty, when followed, brings freedom and life Enjoy and when and when you experience that, it changes you. And if you haven't today, you haven't experienced the Father's embrace and kiss, His desire to find you and hold you and bring you to His heart in His home right now. I want to tell you today, today you can. I want to take just a moment here to pray for you and for all of us that we would experience this, maybe even afresh right now. Lord, we just come to you and I'm thanking you for what you show us, no matter where we are on our road. On a road like that younger son. You stand there waiting. You're looking out for us. And Lord, I'm praying that we would see that and recognize that today. And maybe, maybe, if our hearts have been cold, like this past week, been frozen, buried under snow and ice, hurt, offense, betrayal. Things have been done to us or said to us. And as we see the person of Jesus, the perfect person, God in the flesh, crucified for us, hanging, bleeding, suffering, dying, and raised. Well, that sun would melt our hearts. Would open up our feelings even towards you. We'd receive you now, perhaps in a new way. Lord, I'm praying for all of us now to experience that kiss, the affirmation, and not because of what we've done because of who Jesus is and what he's done. I thank you for that today. Lord, let us come to love you with all of our soul, all of our might, all of our mind, all of our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.